Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this week's Cedarville Stories podcast with my guest, Dr. Devin Robinson. I'm really looking forward to my conversation with Devin for many reasons, one being that we share similar roles with our respective organizations. Devin has served the United States Air Force since he graduated with a degree in broadcasting from Cedarville in 2003. He has been a public affairs officer for the Air Force since 2003, but in May of 2022, he was named the spokesman for the Secretary of Defense on North America, South America, the National Guard, and Homeland Issues. Obviously, this is a very important and a high-profile position, and it's really encouraging to know that a Cedarville graduate is leading in this role. Devin and his wife, Adelise, daughter, Carrie Elizabeth, and son, Louise, reside in Washington, D.C., where they are active in their church. We have much to talk about today on the program, so let me welcome Devin Robinson to this week's Cedarville Stories podcast. Welcome, Devin. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate the opportunity to be with you. So there's much to your story that I want our listeners to hear about. And let's begin with, how did a young man from the state of Maine discover Cedarville University? Yeah, no, it is it is kind of interesting. So yeah, I grew up in a small town in in southern Maine, and um, when I was uh, when I was a young teen, um, the Cedarville Torchbearers came, yeah. and they uh, they came to our church and they did a concert. And um, I remember that afterwards they said, "Hey, anybody who is like junior high age and older, we'd love to get together with you afterwards." And they they promised like snacks, I think, or something. Of, of course. <laughs> So the junior high and high school uh, kids met with them afterwards in the library at the church and they had a little presentation. I think they had like a maybe a tape that they played, like a videotape that showed the campus and all this stuff. And uh, I remember thinking, wow, that's pretty cool. I'd never thought about college <laughs> to that point. And uh, they were the first ones to really pitch pitch college. And I remember coming away from it going, yeah, I guess that's that's probably where I'll go to college. <laughs> I remember being pretty confident from that moment on, like, yeah, Cedarville sounds good. I think that's where I'll go. So, Devin, you mentioned that um, when you told your mom that you were sold on Cedarville and she said, well, keep your options open and apply to other places, did you heed her advice? Well, yes, I did in, in principle, right? So um, <laughs> uh, my desire to, to tour and see the world and do Christian music, I, I ended up touring with the Continentals, uh, when I, the Continental Singers in the 80s and 90s, that was like the Christian high school music touring group, right? So I did that, and their rehearsal place where they met was over in California at Westmont. And yep. so I had I had visited there. I was like, well, I'll put that one down. I've heard of it. And then a guy on my basketball team went to Houghton and played basketball in Houghton. I was like, well, I've heard of that. I'll put that down too. Uh, but in the back of my mind, I was just like, uh, she told me to apply to three schools. So I did. I I, I, I never visited uh, the others purposefully and I just picked Cedarville. Well, it's really impressive to me being someone who has been on the Westmont campus that you selected Cedarville University over a school that's in Santa Barbara, California. I do remember that I was pretty amazed. I had never seen really uh, topography like that. It's sort of set right into the hill there, like right. in, in uh, near Beverly Hills, you know, and uh, as a, I was thinking I was 15 at the time. I was like, this is insane. And I think it was probably a little overwhelming too. So I was like, yeah, I think Cedarville is a little bit more my speed. You were part of the last incoming freshman class of Cedarville College. Does that hold special meaning to you? 
Yeah, I still have some Cedarville College swag. So like when I started as a freshman, my freshman year was uh, the fall of 99. Okay. Um, and so it was still college at that point. And right. Chuck's was Chuck's was still over by um, by the hill um, over by there. And so one of the so that was my freshman year. I still dined at the old Chuck's. And I remember they had a survey that they sent around to all the all the students. And they said, like, we're thinking about, you know, would you be more interested in a, if it was called Cedarville University or Cedarville College? And they let us kind of vote. OK. And I remember being part of that. And I, I voted. Yeah, university sounds cool. So I think I voted for that. And then I remember that when they made the announcement, then all the Cedarville College stuff in the bookstore was like 50 percent off. So I went over <laughs> and got a bunch got a bunch of discounted Cedarville College stuff. But towards the end of my freshman year, they had a, a a Chuck's parade. So basically, they had us all go to Chuck's and take armloads of stuff and make the walk across campus over to where the new Chuck's uh, was going to be. So we kind of helped like move all the stuff over there as one of the last things we did. And I heard that they did the same thing when they moved from the old library. Uh, from the old library and also from the old ministry center when they moved into the Dixon Ministry Center. I think that was like the year before I got there or maybe two years. But yeah, things were moving on campus uh, from the time I got there. It was an exciting time to be there. So when you were a student, you majored in broadcasting and you had two, in my opinion, two outstanding uh, professors in uh, Jim Leitenheimer and Jim Crago. How did these two guys impact your academics and maybe ultimately your career and your life? Well, uh, both were amazing, amazing mentors and leaders and just super talented and super humble guys. Um, from the moment I arrived on campus, feeling very much like a fish out of water, both both of them, Mr. Leitenheimer on the uh, on the radio side of things and then Mr. Craigle on the on the video side of things, I was able to kind of do both, you know, and so I, I got heavily involved with the radio station uh, right off the bat. I remember one story about Mr. Leitenheimer is I, I made the decision the summer before my sophomore year that I was going to drive from Maine to Western Missouri to visit a friend like two weeks before campus opened for the fall. So I, I drove through and I got to Cedarville and I was like, oh, I'm just going to keep going. It's only another 14 hours taking for granted that I'd already been awake. I'd been driving for like 19 hours. And so I was in town, like, I think it, it, we used to call it the village super value or super rip. I think it's a dollar general or something now. We super rip. Super rip. Yeah. Um, so I was stopping there and I saw Mr. Leitenheimer and he's like, what are you doing here? Campus doesn't open for two weeks. And I was like, well, I'm driving to Western Missouri to see a friend. And he goes, how long have you been in the car? And I told him and he goes, no, come back to my house. So he like legitimately like basically took me back to his house and made me sleep on his couch. And I met his his family and his son was a year behind me in class. And so that's when I met him because his son was coming in as a freshman. He's he's an amazing guy. And, and just the opportunities that he gave me on the radio. And then with Mr. Craigle, he was my advisor all through my four years. And uh, he got me involved in uh, doing video in chapel uh, so running video cameras and then as I got older and a little bit more experienced up in the booth, like pushing buttons and stuff. Yeah, there was a guy. Um, I think he doesn't work there anymore, but a guy named Mark Button who was like really involved in the audio. And he and I got to be good buddies. And uh, so we got to work together on that. And then Mr. Craigle used to do um, some projects in the community, like little small projects. And he would use students as his assistants or whatever. And he had a little company called, I think it was called Cedar Tree Productions or something like that. 
And so he would go and do these little projects and he would grab guys or, or gals would be like, hey, come along and help me. And that's where you really learned like how to make a commercial, right? Is like by doing. Right. And he really couldn't do that in the classroom. And so I learned so much from him just doing that. He got me my first um, internship at Time Warner Cable in Dayton, which turned into a job running cameras for the Dayton Dragons, which I did for two years uh, for for double A baseball, which is an which was an incredible experience. And so, yeah, just both those guys incredibly important and impactful in uh, in my time at Cedarville. Uh, you were doing a morning radio show for U ninety U ninety nine five right on campus when a situation, as you said, changed your life forever. What was that situation? Do you recall? Yeah, so it was the first fall that the radio station is was in its current place where it is now in the basement of the Stevens Student Center. And right across from that entrance way was where the coffee shop is. And I, I don't remember what it's called now, but Renova. Or? Renova. Okay. At the time it was called The Hive. That was what they called it when it first opened. And so I was used to seeing people congregating out there. And I was doing the radio show and uh we were basically done because we go like six to nine. And I and we were doing some like wrap up uh, business after the show and and some planning, putting things back because back then you still had to like put CDs in the computer to play. Sure. But uh, so we we're kind of picking up and stuff. And I, I noticed that there was a bit of a crowd sort of gathering outside. And I was like, that's that's strange. So they want they, uh, they want they wanted to hear you. No, no, they were not looking at us. They were watching the big TVs that are in that outside area by the coffee table or okay. coffee shop. So I go outside and I'm like, hey, what's going on? And they're like, hey, um, uh, a plane flew into the, the World Trade Center. And I was like, for real? And they're like, yeah, it happened a while ago. We were just watching it. So we were all standing there because uh, the first the, the, the first plane was not carried live on, on TV, obviously, because right. they didn't know it was happening. Right. But the second plane, they, they were obviously focused in. So we watched it. We watched it happen. And as I remember, and, you know, it was a long time ago, as I remember, Dr. Dixon uh, had come down and was sort of standing with us and watching. And it just, it was so surreal. Like it was just dead silent. And we were like, is this even real? You know, like what, what's going on? And, uh, and I had planned, um, I had this grand plan of what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to go and do an internship up in Canada with a Christian broadcasting film company that focused on like documentaries. I had this goal of like, I want to go, make like sponsorship videos for, you know, like missionaries and stuff. And, uh, in an instant, like I found myself like questioning, like, is that really what I should be doing? And I remember I went home over Thanksgiving or Christmas break. I remember just laying in bed and thinking, I feel like I ought to do something. I feel like I have an obligation in some way to, to do something. And so I made a couple of calls. And by the time I got back to campus, uh, after the winter break, I had an appointment to go talk to the Air Force and I enlisted um, in February of 2002. And that, ch that changed everything. <laughs> that, that, that has changed everything. And we'll get into that part uh, a little bit in the program. So how confident were you that this was the right thing for you to do, that the Lord was leading you this way? And I'm curious also, how did your parents respond to that? My parents, uh, my parents were supportive. Um, they didn't know a ton about it. Uh, they were not military. Um, my grandfather, my father's uh, father, was in World War II, um, and his older brother had had served during the Vietnam era um, in the Navy. So he was familiar 
to some degree as an observer, but like they really didn't know. I didn't really know, you know what I mean? Like I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Um, I just remember making phone calls, you know, I called the army, I called the Navy. I remember I called the, I think I called the main state police. Really? <laughs> and I was just like, you know, how do I, how do I get involved in something that's bigger than myself? How do I give back? Like at this time when people are giving, like, how do I give back? And ultimately the air force, uh, had the best pitch and, and they said, enlist with us. We'll put you, you can just continue going to Cedarville. And if you do X, Y, and Z, when you graduate, um, we'll make you an officer and, and there, there you go. So that's what I ended up doing. So let's fast forward to sure. two, 2003. You graduate, <laughs> you graduate from Cedarville university. You're commissioned as yep. a second, second Lieutenant in the air force. Correct. You serve four years of active duty. What roles did you perform, uh, in your active duty roles? Okay. So uh, in the time after 9-11, they were taking as many people as they could, right? They were anticipating a long conflict with uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan, or what, what was eventually called the Global War on Terror. And then um, that was in 2000, the end of 2001 and early 2002. And then by 2003-ish, the war in Iraq had had started. So we were now doing two sort of wars at the same time. They had taken more people than they were really authorized to have. And so Congress had allowed them to take extra people in the spin-up. So I didn't have what was called a dedicated billet or a dedicated position. I was kind of a floater. So first they sent me to Texas and I was a flight administrative officer at, at Randolph uh, Air Force Base, which is outside San Antonio. And uh, until I could get a public affairs job, which is what I wanted to do. And then they sent me back to, they sent me to D.C., and I worked at the uh, Office of Special Investigations, which is uh, it always kills me to have to make this comparison. But if you're familiar with the TV show NCIS, yeah, <laughs> I, I hate to compare the Air Force to the Navy in this way. But if you're familiar with that show, OSI is the Air Force version okay. of NCIS. Right. So I was the uh, deputy public affairs officer for uh, the commander or the director of Air Force OSI uh, in D.C., and uh, I drove for him and uh, edited a, a, a command magazine and some other things like that. Did some speech writing, some things like that. So I did that for about uh, a year. And then I had an opportunity to, like I mentioned before, I really like music. I had an opportunity uh, in the Air Force, public affairs officers and band officers are part of the same, uh, what they call Air Force specialty code, which is a 35. So public affairs is 35 or Papa and, and band is 35 B Bravo. So it's the same designator. So you have opportunities sometimes to cross over. So I did a year with an air force band called tops in blue. Um, and we did about 150 shows, uh, over the course of a year, uh, on five continents and, and just probably hundreds of thousands of miles that we flew and drove over the course of that year. So I did that. And then when I came back from that, I was the deputy media relations uh, officer for what was then called the 89th airlift wing or the presidential airlift wing. So that they basically was there to support air force one. Yeah. So um, my boss was a, a, a man, a captain McConnell, and he was awesome. Uh, very patient. I, I had been in the air force at this point for almost two years, but I hadn't really done a ton of like actual public affairs work. I'd kind of been here, there and everywhere. So he really took me under his wing and we did a lot of work. Um, I don't know if you remember uh, during the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, 
they had this thing they called the Western White House. And sure. it was it was Bush's ranch right. uh, in Texas. And he liked to work there uh, almost as much as he liked to be in D.C. He would take a bunch of his staff and a bunch of media and they would just I think it was in Crawford and they would just fly to Texas and they'd stay there for weeks and weeks and weeks. And they had kitted out the the ranch with everything he needed to do his job. And he just preferred to work there. So every time he would go and come anywhere, the media had to be there to document it for it's newsworthy. Anytime the president goes somewhere, it's newsworthy. Absolutely. Yeah, because you, ne- you never know, right? You never know what could happen. So you want to be there to document it. So my job was to meet the media at the base gate, help them get through security, the dogs sniff their equipment, all this other stuff, put them on a bus, drive them over to the wing. They'd go out and we'd get them all lined up on the runway. And then I'd stand on the runway and pull my hat down really tight so that the wind wouldn't blow it off. And then the helicopter would come in. He'd get out. He'd give his little wave. He'd go up the stairs and they'd take off. Everybody's taking pictures. And then Air Force One would go up and it would disappear. And then another plane would roll up and the media would get on that plane really quick and they'd take off. And then that plane would have to pass Air Force One in the air and get to the destination they were going and land first so that they could get out and take pictures of him landing. So I had a special phone. We call it the bat phone. (laughs) And it would go off at any time of the day or night. And they'd be like, hey, the president's going somewhere. Get to work. So we just have to drop everything and and get into work. And and sometimes you'd go out and come back in the same day. So we'd have to do it do the whole thing. Yeah. But anyway, that's a bit a bit more about that particular story. Uh, I did get to meet him once, got to shake his hand, which was really cool. I got to um, meet uh, Condoleezza Rice and uh, and Dick Cheney and a couple others. Rumsfeld walked past me, but he was I mean, he was uh, he was Rumsfeld, so he wasn't going to talk to me. But um, <laughs> did you get to fly on Air Force One? I never set foot on the plane. I spent so much time standing in the sun outside the plane. I wish I could have gotten on the plane, but I never did. Yeah, never did. And so I did that for about a summer. Uh, it was like five months. And then I got a formal assignment. And the formal assignment was to Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, which is in the uh, Cape Fear uh, region of southeastern North Carolina. It's a F-15 Strike Eagle base. They have four squadrons or did have four squadrons, over 100 uh, aircraft. It's a training base. It's one of the largest F-15 bases that we have. And I was a uh, the chief of internal information. So I was responsible for the base newspaper, the commander's access television channel and a bunch of other things like that. So I did that for about a year and a half. And then uh, the war in Iraq ended. And they said, ah, I, I don't think we want to have quite so many overages uh they took all those extra people. Right. So they said, uh, we're going to have all of you people that were extra transition over into the Garden Reserve. So in in, in the end of my fourth year, I uh, transitioned over into what's called the inactive reserve of the IRR and uh, to take a little break. Did you ever step back and just look at what, what you were doing, where the Lord had put you and think, yeah. wow, I'm from a little town in Maine. And I get to do this. How how exciting was that for you? It was unbelievable. Like, I, I couldn't believe, like, the thing that was the most surprising was everybody kept telling me, hey, no offense, but you're extra. Like, you are, you are added value. Hey, that's great. However, we don't actually have a job for you. So I just tried to approach it as, hey, I get to be here and I get to do work. Like I'm going to find something to do. So one example of, and that sort of informed, uh, the air force's motto is, um, 
service before self, integrity first. Sorry, I always get it. Integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all we do. And so I really tried to internalize that, even from a Christian lens, and and say like, hey, if if I'm an extra person here, how do I add value? So when President Bush was in Texas for three weeks, his plane wasn't going anywhere. So I had nothing to do. So I said to my boss, I was like, what could I do that nobody else wants to do that could add value? Yeah. And he goes, well, you know, we get all these requests from like schools and and civic groups and stuff that want tours of the base. And we just don't have enough people to do the tours. And I said, okay, well, how do you do a tour? And he goes, well, here's the problem. In order to do the tour, you've got to get a driver to drive one of those buses, one of those tour buses that they have on the base. And I said, okay. So I went down to the transportation company. I was like, hey, how do I get certified to drive the bus? And he looked at me crazy as this young enlisted guy. And he looks at this officer like, why do you want to drive a bus? And I was like, I just want to drive the bus. And he goes, okay, fine. I'll teach you to drive the bus. So in my spare time in the afternoons, I'd go over there and he certified me to drive the bus. So then I go back to my boss and I was like, hey, look what I got, boss. It's a U.S. Air Force bus driver license. Can I give the tours? And he goes, I guess. So then that became my part time like activity was giving tours, uh, taking people around, which required me to learn about the base and the history and all this other stuff. And I got to do some really cool stuff, you know, and and meet like the Canadian. I gave the Canadian Air Force a tour. You know, there's a bunch of Canadian Air Force officers down. And and those I think it was just looking for opportunities to try and add value, even though, you know, I was there just as an extra body. I think that was that was that was a big part of it. And and by looking for those opportunities, other opportunities presented themselves, you know. Right. And, and, And that's kind of. That's kind of I, as best I can understand, other than just God's God's providence and God's blessings upon me to put me in these positions to see these things and do these things. Um, I think it was it, for whatever part of it was my part. It was always trying to look for a way to add value if I could. Yeah. And, and I'm interested in that. So do you think that was something that was instilled to you as a as a young person by your parents or equally was that part of, you know, maybe your spiritual development and, and service to the Lord? I think it's both. I think it's three things, really. And, and I think upbringing is, is a big part of it. My, my grandfather was significantly older when he had my father, right? So he was a World War II vet, whereas my father was a, a teenager during the tail end of the Vietnam era, right? So like, it almost was like I had a great-grandfather. So like my father was raised in a household that had that pre-World War II kind of work ethic, right? Yeah. And and so he's a really hard worker and he expected a lot of hard work from us and that's how he raised us. So I remember being the a bagger at a grocery store in our uh in the next town over and I realized like if I go outside and I have to drag in the carriages off the off the parking lot like I would see other guys go out there and they'd be just like, duh, duh, and they push the cars. So that I've got an hour that I have to be out here. So I'm just going to spend the whole hour out here. And I was like, I don't want to be outside. It's it's hot. So I'd go out, I get carts as fast as I could. And then I go back inside and I'd, they'd be like, hey, you're not done. I'm like, no, no, the lot's clean. I'll bag for 15 minutes. Then I'll go back out. And so like not just hiding around the corner of the building once the lot was clear, going back inside and doing a little bit more work. Like then they said, oh, you're a hard worker when they had an opportunity for somebody to become a cashier. 
like they came to me first. Right. And then I got to be a cashier. I got paid more money, more responsibility. Right. So it's always kind of instilled in me that way. And I didn't really understand it necessarily from a spiritual perspective until strangely enough, I came back to Cedarville in 2013. And I know we're going to get to that, but they assigned a book by um, Keller and Alsdorf about finding uh, God's purpose in work. Right. And, and, we had to read that book uh, several times throughout the course of the program. And I just love the book. I absolutely love it because it really talks about how excellence, which is an air force virtue as well. Excellence opens as many doors for witness as shouting does. Right. So, so I could, I could go to work and I could be like trying to talk to everybody I work with about Jesus, which is fine. Or I could be like putting tracks in everybody's lockers at, at work or whatever if I'm one of the best workers and I have the best integrity and like I'm a selfless helper and like I'm really engaged, I think there's a better chance that somebody there, Keith Green uh, had a line in one of his old songs that said, I like what that boy's got, right? It's because <laughs> of you. And then he turns it back to God and says, but it's because of you. It's because of you that I can hold my head up high. And that's why people say, I like what that boy's got, right? So that was kind of my philosophy as well. Like I want them to come to me and go like, hey, you seem to have it squared away. Like, why? And then that opens a door rather than sort of pounding. And so it was my upbringing. It was, you know, Air Force values and, and military culture and, and that sort of thing. And then also the training that I got, you know, at Cedarville and, and those sorts of things. So when I hear you say all that, to me, what it tells me is you were doing it the Jesus way. You know, humility, right. service above self, loving on others doing the best you can for his purpose. That's what I see. Um, and when you mentioned c- coming back to Cedarville in 2013, what you were referring to is you came back to Cedarville to earn an MBA. Actually, you were, I think, in our first MBA program or yes. cohort. So why was it important for you to come back to Cedarville for this graduate degree? I mentioned at the end of t- 2006, I was four years in just about, and they were asking people or nicely voluntolding people, hey, you got to go join the reserves. So I decided I was I was really shocked by this. I was married at this point. Uh, my wife was pregnant uh, with our first child, our daughter. Ever since I met my wife and we started dating, I was like, yeah, I'm going to be in the Air Force my entire career. And then this came around just a couple years after we were married. And they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, you're you're probably not going to be in the military anymore. And it was like really shocking. And I, I was trying to understand what God was doing. I guess it was for for good. And obviously God works it for good. But I got a little bitter about the military for a brief time. And I was like, well, if they don't want me, you know, then I guess I'm done. Right. So I went into the inactive reserve and they're like, hey, you could join a unit and still. And I'm like, no, no, you don't want me. I'm done. And I thought about it for eight or nine months. And I realized that was kind of an immature response to a situation that I had no control over. Right. So I reached back out and I said, hey, you know what? Um, I changed my mind. I want to get back involved. So I got back involved in the military on a part-time basis with the Air National Guard, but that's a part-time job. So I needed a full-time job. So I got a job uh, at an advertising agency running the creative uh, the creative services department. So video, uh, audio, and print. I, over the course of six or seven years, I felt like I was developing that department and and like doing some good things. And, you know, we were making more money every year. And when I started, we were still mailing out tapes to the TV stations. 
And within a couple of years, like we were uploading files. Right. And like, yeah, you, YouTube became a thing while I was there and like social media became a thing while I was there. So there was a lot of changes and I felt like I was a big part of that. And again, I was sort of disappointed because I went to the leadership of the company and I said, hey, you know, it was a partnership or a group of people that were partners. And I, I said, you know, I what what's my avenue to, to, to potentially become a partner? And they said, well, you need to learn more about business. Um, so I started thinking about that. And then I think I got a mailer, uh, something in the mail or whatever from the Alumni Association or something. And they were talking about this brand new online MBA program that they're going to do. Hey, we, we're looking for the people, just the right people to be in the first class. And it was Dan, um, Dan Sturkenberg, who was sure. heading up that program. I know he's, he's, he's still, still quite involved with it. And, uh, I called him and we talked about it and he, and he heard about my background. He's like, this is definitely something we want you to do or whatever. So I got involved with it, uh, in 2013 and we were the first class to kind of do it. And so it was kind of fun to, to see them. These are brilliant brilliant uh men but they're feeling their way along in this new world of online coursework so there was no canvas at the time right i think we were i think we were using blackboard uh but the cool thing about it was it was so small it was such a small cohort and it was tracked so every time we changed classes it was basically the same eight or ten guys so i still message with some of these guys uh, even 10 years later, I see them on LinkedIn and we message each other and stuff and we talk and it was really small. So it was really and that's how I met Curtis Klein and, uh, you know, and 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 got to know Dan and and, and Dr. Delano and some of the other people uh, who were involved. Uh, so it was it was absolutely what I needed. But the but the funny thing was, I thought I was doing this because I wanted to make partner at the agency but I was only about a year into the process when I realized like one of the other guys came to me and said, you, you realize that you are never, you are never making part like no offense, oh, wow. but, wow. but this is like, this is just not how this is going to work. Like you don't have, you don't have the money. You don't it, like, there was a lot of like, it wasn't just that I didn't know about business. Right. And, and, and that's totally fine and no hard feelings at all. Like they were amazing and I really value the time and I learned so much there. But once I realized that that wasn't practical for me, I started looking for other things to do. And, and that's that's how I kind of moved on from there. Let's move on in our final minutes on the podcast. So a year, a year or two later, um, you received an unsolicited Facebook message from someone you've never met before asking sure. if you'd be interested in returning to active duty, which is really amazing, moving to yeah. moving to D.C. and become the deputy public affairs officer for the Air National Guard. And, I, and when I say for the Air National Guard, I mean for the entire Air National Guard. Right. Why, right. why did you accept this offer and how long did it take you to decide to accept it? Okay, yeah. So um, I was a part-time uh, public affairs officer in Maine, um, one of a couple. Uh, so certainly not, um, certainly not like the highest ranking person uh, in, my, in my, even in my group of public affairs folks and uh, I joined a Facebook group that was for Air National Guard PA professionals. So this was just like a place where you could share questions and ideas and everything like that. And I, I was decently active, I guess, not terribly active. And I got a Facebook message from a guy and his his name is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Randy Saldivar, a uh, guy from Texas originally. He'd been a Coast Guardsman uh, enlisted and he had served in Maine. And when he saw that I was from Maine, he, we, we chatted a little bit. He sent me some message about Maine when he was there. And then he goes, hey, you know what? 
I want to talk to you on the phone about something, opportunity or whatever. And basically I called him and, and he, uh, he really sold me on, Hey, I, I'd like you to come down to DC, come back onto active duty, sign a four year, uh, contract and, uh, come back and be my deputy. And I was, I was finishing up my doctor at the time. And I said to him, I was like, could we do it next year? Could, you know, could we do it in a year? And he, he, uh, he said, you know, these opportunities don't come along very often. Sometimes you just have to strike while the iron's hot. So I thought about it for about a week. I talked to my wife. We met in D.C. when I was stationed at the Pentagon as a lieutenant. So she was keen to move back to D.C. because she liked it. And uh, so we decided to do it. And uh, when I got there in uh, May of 2019, kind of got my bearings for a couple weeks. I think I'd been there two weeks. And Colonel Saldivar pulls me aside and he goes, by the way, I've just accepted a job in Alaska and I'm leaving. And I said, OK, well, what does that mean about who's the director now? I'm the deputy. And he goes, you're the director now. Congratulations. And then within a week, he was gone. Really? <laughs> and I was like, oh, my goodness. And I remember there was a the two star general who is now um, the commander of the first Air Force in uh, Florida, uh, Lieutenant General uh, Steve Nordhaus. He pulled me in and he was like, listen, you got this, right? It's it's OK. It's going to be fine. And he showed a lot of uh, belief in me. And uh, and we got up, we got spun up and everything. And things were going pretty good. And then I, I was just feeling like I was getting my legs under me. And then lo and behold, it's like February of 2020. And what happened then? COVID. COVID-19, right? So, so the largest activation, the largest sustained activation of the National Guard since World War II, right? And it's my job and my team's job to organize uh, all these different Air Guard public affairs shops all around the 50 states, three territories in the District of Columbia to make sure that the messaging is consistent, that they're telling their story, that they have the resources and the assets that they need, that we're taking those stories and amplifying them at the national level. And I was doing it largely separated from my entire team. Like for two years, I only saw my team on Zoom. So it was it was a it was quite a <laughs> quite a challenge. But I'm really proud of the work that we did during that time. As director, you reported to a three star general, a two star general, a one star general. <laughs> And a, yeah. and, a, and a general equivalent civilian. So yes. how were you able to effectively handle this high-level report? And that's pretty intimidating. Yeah. I, public affairs officers have a slight advantage in that regard because we what's good about us is also the challenge we face, and that is we are often underranked compared to our peers in other careers. So at a wing, you'll have a, a an 06, a full bird colonel that's the wing commander. And his lawyer will be like a lieutenant colonel or sometimes a colonel. And his chief of medicine will be a lieutenant colonel or a colonel. And it's quite often that his public affairs officer will be a lieutenant or a captain, right? His chaplain, his chaplain will be a colonel, right? So like we have to come to the table with all these higher ranking people and have a voice. So we get some practice with it. And I had worked for a two-star general in Maine um, for a number of years, for about 10 years. But coming and having on the Air National Guard side, my boss was a three-star general, uh, first General Rice and then uh, General Lowe, who is the current director. And then on the National Guard side, the joint side, where the Army and the Air Guard are together sure. at the Bureau, 
That's a four-star general. That's General Hokanson. Um, and I have a responsibility to him. And then the Air National Guard is also viewed as like a part of the Air Force because we technically are. So I had responsibilities to the Secretary of the Air Force, who is a general level civilian and a one star general who was over that whole setup there. So it was it was exactly right. It was like Paul says, you know, he has to be all things to all people. Right. Uh, it really became you have to be a good listener because generals um, generals are used to being listened to. So if you let them talk and you pay attention, they will let you know what's important to them. And once you figure out what's important to them and and sometimes what they want will cross over with what somebody else wants. Right. So you just have to get good at parsing out. OK, what does this general want versus what does that general want? And how do I how do I live in that area between the two? And I don't know that anything really prepares you for it. You just kind of strike out uh, on a wing and a prayer, as it were. And uh, God was really good to me. And I had good support staff and I had supportive leadership uh, throughout. And so I was I was successful, you know, uh, to the point where when an opportunity came to go work for the secretary of defense, they they picked me to do it. So it was a it was a challenge. And all of that during covid, all of that during the civil unrest uh, of the George Floyd riots right. and, and, and all of that. And then January 6th, that happened on my watch. So the DC guard was heavily involved in that. And, and I was responsible for the messaging on that. So there was a lot of stuff that happened, plus all the hurricanes and all the, and COVID and all that. So it was only by God's grace. That was the only way I was able to get through it, honestly. So I want to ask you two final questions as a spokesperson spokesman for the Department of Defense. What do you do okay. on a daily basis? And then I'll wrap it up with, uh, you have about one year left on your contract. Right. What's, what's coming next? Sure, sure. I, I, uh, hopefully as I as I talk it through, we'll figure it out together. Let's because do it. I, don't have all, I certainly don't have all the answers. But uh, currently my job is I am the spokesperson for the Secretary of Defense as it relates to North America, South America, the National Guard, and Homeland Defense and the interagency. So the Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Patrol, um, the Army Corps of Engineers. So anything related to Homeland Defense, the National Guard, or the regional commands of Northern Command and Southern Command. So that whole, basically, Western Hemisphere is my responsibility. So one of the things that's really important about engaging with the media is understanding what their goals are and they want to tell these stories and they want to break these stories and that is their goal right so we're friendly with them but we have to understand that they have a job to do right and we can help them and we do everything we can to help them and to educate them even off the record to to say hey let me just educate you on how this works right and if you are cooperative and collaborative and 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 open with them like hey i can't give you any more than this you know, this is what I can give you right now. You can develop really good relationships with the media. That may sound impossible because the media is there to, to break stories, right? And, and everything. But I've, I, in my year or 15 months that I've been there, I've had a great, great time uh, getting to know the media and working with the media. I've never had any problems uh, working with them. And it's been a great experience. Yeah, in my very small corner of public relations here at Cedarville, that's one of the highlights of my my career or my job is developing relationships with the media 
and uh, helping them do their job. And when I do that, they're more inclined to trust me and, and treat us fairly and give us the benefit of the doubt. Well, let me tell you, I think I think you are partially uh, responsible. I remember back, uh, maybe it was two election cycles ago, you had a professor who was doing a lot of hits, uh, was doing a lot of media hits and was out doing media. And I was so excited because um, I was like, oh, my gosh, I know that guy. Or I, I don't know him, but like that's that's from my university. And I was like sharing the clips and stuff. And uh, it was really cool to, to see you guys um, being proactive because it can be so easy, especially when you're small. Um, and especially with this world, uh, that we live in right now, you think, well, nobody is really open to my message, right? Like they don't want to hear from me. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case. And like, I was really proud, uh, when I saw you guys really getting out there and trying to make it that impact in the culture, even in the political culture, which is so fraught from time to time. So Devin, um, you got a, you got a year left or, or so on your contract. What's what are you thinking? Are you going to renew? You're going to go a different direction? Where's God uh, leading you at this point as you sense? Well, I have about a year left on my contract. My contract ends. They extended me to five years. So I signed a four-year contract. They extended me once. And that is, um, I will have to do something a little different after this one. You, you can only do to a five-year contract and then you have to, to find a new contract. I'll be done in May of 2024 in terms of this particular job working with the Secretary of Defense. Um, and as of right now, we're very prayerfully, you know, seeking God on this because we don't really know. We know what we want. And what we want is, you know, my son is uh, our son is 13. Uh, our daughter is 17. So we would really like to maybe find another four to five year contract, which would enable them to sort of finish up their high school time here in D.C., and then, you know, after that, you know, then the doors become much wide, much more wide open, thinking as creatively as possible. You know, I, I love organizations like um, like Answers in Genesis and the Ark Encounter and those sorts of things. I think, man, wouldn't it be great? Like I, I pray my wife and I, we pray about it and I say, God, wouldn't it just be so amazing if I didn't have to stress about money too much and I could just go to a ministry that I'm really excited about and do some PR and marketing for them and, and just be 110% bought in on everything they're doing and not have to worry about anything, you know, in terms of like, what am I going to be asked to work with today? Like, just be 110% on board. Uh, wouldn't that be great? And so we pray about it. We, we think about it. Thank you for telling your story. Thank you for being faithful to the gospel, for, for serving our country well. And uh, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Absolutely. An absolute pleasure. I'm excited to see what you guys are doing with the podcast and doing in your, your marketing and your social media engagement. Just just really, really thrilled to, to be watching and, and now to be a small part of it. So thank you. I want to thank you for listening to the Cedarville Stories podcast brought to you by Cedarville University. You are encouraged to share, like, and review this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another Cedarville story for God's glory.